Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash slatemoney. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. Hello, and welcome to a very special 2 and 20 edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Although, this week, it's not really the week. We have answered your prayers, because, well, your emails... Um, we don't we don't hear your prayers. We do hear your email, slatemoney at slate.com. And you have been asking us to talk about alternative assets and this whole thing called 2 and 20. And for there's many of you who don't necessarily know what that is, we will tell you. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, Felix. Hello, Kathy. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. Have you got a number for this week, Jordan? Felix is gesturing, alluding to the fact that I might have been scrambling for a number before this episode began. I would like to happily inform the audience that, yes, I do have a number, and it's a good number. It's a perfectly good number. And, and Jordan, can you tell us, what, what is this episode about? Uh, this episode is going to be all about hedge funds and private equity and venture capital and all those, those fun terms you hear, th- things that you well, hear rich people can, investing well, the, in. The great thing is, because... I'm I'm kind of astonished we haven't worked this out before. Slate Money always has three topics. And there are three huge buckets in what people call like the two and twenty world. And so Natural. It's a natural for, for combination. That, it's a natural combination. So it's we're gonna almost cover like it was all, fate. Like all it was three fate. of them in one show. Um, Kathy. Yeah. Why do we call it two and twenty? Well, that's the way you get paid to do it. So it's all about money in these in these places that these hedge funds, these venture capitalist firms. It's all about how much money you amass doing your job. I always like to say that the only real arbitrage opportunity on Wall Street is working inside a hedge fund. And so 2 and 20, to be precise, is the uh, – so once a year, you take off 2% of all the um, invested funds. You just put it in your pocket. So you get rich people to give you money. You take 2% off the top, put it in your pocket. And then on top of that, you also take 20% of any profit that you've made for them 
in the year. So if you don't make any money for them in that year, you don't get anything in that 20%. It's only of the positive profit. So you could make the 2% and nothing else, but typically in a good year, you make 2% straight up. That's just always, you always get the 2%, and then you make on top of that 20% of the profit. And this, for a big hedge fund manager, can run into billions of dollars. It sure can. Okay. And so, by the way, like a, a lot of the hedge fund managers also use their own money, and they get 100% of that profit, so just Kathy, to be clear. You, yes. you used to work at a hedge fund. I did. So you're going to kick us off, because the one that everyone's heard of is hedge funds. Yeah. So tell, tell me, apart from the how people get paid, what is a hedge fund, and um, should I invest in hedge funds? Well, I I actually don't know if you're allowed to invest in hedge funds, uh, Felix. You tell I am me. a multi-millionaire. Oh, you are? Well, X-hypothesi. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, listen, if you have a, a million dollars of net worth, and I think you have to have a basic um, a certain amount of salary coming in every so year. So it's an either-or thing. To become an accredited investor, you need to have either a oh. million dollars of, of liquid assets, that's not including your home, or... You need a high salary, and by high salary, that means $200,000 a year for single people or $300,000 a year for couples. Right. Okay. So if you have that amount of money coming in or already in your bank account, then you're accredited, which means you are rich enough to invest in a hedge fund. Now, the other... So a lot of... like Basically, there's two big sources for people who invest in, um, in, in hedge funds. One of them is the rich people I just mentioned, and the other one is institutional investors, and that basically means that people who are sitting on a big pot of money, like pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, those guys also invest in hedge funds. Okay. And actually, there's one, a third category, which is called funds of funds. And these are these basically sort of meta hedge funds, which invest rich people and institutional money in hedge funds. So if I'm an investor with a million dollars of liquid assets, I'm accredited, um, should I, A, invest in a hedge fund, B, invest in a fund of funds, or C, none of the above? You know, I I don't know. I You know, it, it really depends. Um, I, let, me, let me break down the categories of the kinds of hedge funds that exist, and you get to decide. Okay. Okay. Um, there's macro hedge funds. That's yes. uh, not the kind I was... I was working at D.E. Shaw, which but is... But the one hedge a, fund manager that most of us have ever heard of is George Soros, and he's the classic macro yes. hedge fund. He's the guy who's like, I think that the pound is overvalued, so I'm going to short the pound, and then the pound crashes, and then he makes a billion dollars. Right. So macro hedge funds, as the name implies, they, they make bets on macroeconomic issues like currency, in the case of Soros, or things like, let's buy up all the real estate. You know, that's that's a bet on the housing market. Those are... Those are a certain type of So when funds. John Paulson made the biggest hedge fund profit in the history of hedge, pro- hedge fund profits by basically shorting the real estate market, that was a macro bet. That's right. That's right. And then there's um, market-neutral hedge funds, which is what I worked at. A DE Shaw was a quantitative and market-neutral hedge fund. Um, and that, in, in that case, you're trying to make money but not by betting on the market. So there's a very simple way of making of investing your money in the market, which we talk about all the time. Just put it in a um, an ETF that follows the, the S and P 500 that just exactly tracks the market. That's what what that means. Um, the idea is when you're very very rich that you already do that. You already do that with some of your money, but you want to sort of hedge that bet by also investing in a hedge fund, which will make money for sort of uh, independent reasons. That's the idea of a market-neutral hedge fund. And yet, somehow, every time you look at a market-neutral hedge fund, it tends to do much better in up years than it does in down <laughs> years. I know, and that's the funny thing. It's like, and I, I since I worked in one of them, I real, t- I can tell you, like we we actually spent a lot of time trying to make ourselves market-neutral. I can tell you a little, may, might be interesting to to hear what it means to try to be market-neutral. So it means like you invest. Uh, so you might invest in the S&P, but then you can't just stay like he- long the S&P. So you have to sort of go short maybe the NASDAQ, which is highly correlated to the S&P. So that when you add up your long position in the S&P and your short position in the NASDAQ, overall, statistically speaking, if one goes up, the other one goes up too. So your overall position stays the same if that makes sense. It's not going to stay exactly the same. Because otherwise you wouldn't make any money. Right. So the, the point but the point is that you're not betting on the market per se. The problem is that when you have a market crash, the sort of the understood correlations that you're, you're using to make these bets, they go out the window. So 
I kind of have a dumb person's question about hedge fund. It's like really, it's but it, it, it's the one I always come back to, and really for all the two and twenty stuff. And you've sort of asked it, Felix. It's why should you invest in it? My question is more: Why do people invest in them? Because classically, you know, the the rap on on hedge funds is that they, on average, trail the market. Like there are some that that beat it by a lot, but you know, Bloomberg refers to them as an expensive way to essentially trail the S and P five hundred. And it's always weird because the, so the, the answer. So let me yeah, answer so that why, question. Why do rich people throw their money at it? Okay, so the first answer is exactly what Kathy was talking about: is diversification. Okay, so. There's more than one thing that you want from an investment. And the first thing that people generally want from an investment is that it goes up in value. And the more that it goes up, the more they like it. But there are other things that people want. And one of the other things that people want is a diversified portfolio. It's basically a don't put all your eggs in one basket thing. So you can put all of your money into the stock market, but then all of your eggs are in that one basket. If you put some of your money into the stock market, some of it into alternative assets, some of it into a timber forest, some of it into bonds, some of it into real estate, some of it into Bitcoin, then if those things are not particularly correlated to each other, then the chances decrease that they'll all go to shit at the same time. So the follow-up question then is... Has the press been unfair in recent years in kind of constantly mocking people for investing in these things, do you think? I mean, Well, one of the things that needs to be pointed out is that hedge funds as a, as a class might actually do worse and worse as time goes on. And that one of the reasons is because everyone invests in hedge funds. So <laughs> this, yeah. this is kind of this weird... H- hedge funds do tend to do better when they're smaller and less good when they're big. And the hedge funds as an asset class are bigger than they've ever been. The other thing to answer your specific question is that we are at the tail end of one of the most astonishing run-ups in the S&P 500, particularly, that it has ever had. Yeah. And... So it's hard to do for, as well for as reasons For reasons which are kind of lost in the mists of time, everyone uses the S&P 500 as a benchmark, even though it's not a particularly sensible benchmark for a lot of different investors. And... So when you look at hedge funds and you compare them to the S&P 500, they're necessarily going to look a bit shitty in comparison when the S&P 500 is doing well, which it has done since 2009. But in general, mm-hmm. you know, you can say, well, that's fine because most of the people who invest in hedge funds are also invested in the S&P 500, so they should be happy. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting to me because, you know, on the one hand, you may, you make this very fair point that they are people who are investing in these specifically want something other than the S&P. They, they aren't just going to take their money and put it there because they are looking for an alternative to hedge themselves. Um, the flip side is if they do on average trail the S&P, maybe other potential benchmarks, you have to wonder about their their fee structure a little bit. Like, Do they really earn the money that they charge, the, this, this kind of guaranteed 2% and then 20% of profits? And, and that's the other thing that no one knowingly or willingly invest in the average hedge fund. Okay. So everyone is trying to pick one of those handful of massive outperformers and you're like, ooh, I get to invest in Rencap, say, because everyone knows that Rencap is amazing and Rencap is not an average hedge fund. So And even in Rencap the av- they have they have the ones that they let people invest in and then the other funds where they don't let people invest yeah, in. Yeah, the one, the one, the bit of rent cap you want to invest in, you're totally not you're allowed not to invest in, in. Yeah. because because too many people would want to buy into it. it and they need the to people who work at rent cap are the only ones it, that have investments there. Is this is that basically kind of a, a Groucho Marx type thing? Like, yeah, yeah you maybe with head funds in general, well, you never want to be part of one that'll have well, you as a yes, client. Well, yes, but the reason is because, as Felix mentioned, the the larger you scale up, the less your any kind of uh, investment strategy actually works. Okay, interesting. It's, presuming it works at all. Can you, can you get a little bit more into why that is? I'm, 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 well, you know, because if you if you expect uh, a certain kind of investor to make a certain kind of move, and you can you can in- take that move in advance to mm-hmm. make the money that you know is going to like, let's just say, if you have a hundred times more money, it, you can't you can't make a hundred times more profit on that. Once you've responded before the market, 
Okay, let, let, let me let me answer that question. No, no, I think I, I think I got what Kathy's saying. But I, oh, okay, Felix, you want to take it as well? Yeah. yeah the, the answer is that with a small amount of money, you can jump into the market and make trades without moving the market. When you have a large amount of money and you go into the market, the very act of buying and selling moves the market against you, and so it make, it becomes much harder to make big investments than it is to make small investments. Well, I mean, it's it's even okay to move the market a little bit, right. but you don't want to move the market so much that it's the the pattern's no longer there. So that's the problem. And I, you know, going back to what kind of hedge funds there are, I mean, you can see just by the variety of hedge funds that these really are sometimes very useful for people, depending on what their portfolio looks like. So you have, you know, you have um, emerging markets. Now, to the extent that emerging markets, their equity, just basically their stock markets, um, to the extent that you can invest in them and that they really are independent of the S&P, then that, that is diver- diversifying. And then, of course, there's the hedge fund category that is probably closest to Felix's heart, which is distress, distressed debt hedge funds. I'm going to let you talk about this. So, yeah, I, I love distressed debt hedge funds. Well, there are very few hedge funds who invest exclusively in distressed exclusively, debt. Exclusively, But there yes. are a lot of what's known as activist hedge funds and special situations hedge funds. And these are hedge funds who, far from not wanting to move the market, really do try to move the market. So what they do is they'll take a position in a certain asset, and then they will move heaven and earth to try and change the value of the asset themselves. So in the case of distressed debt, hedge funds, what you do is you buy a bunch of distressed debt, and then you start suing people and, and, you know, starting campaigns and try and persuading them that you need to get paid back in full. And you steal a yacht owned by the government of Argentina. (laughs) Um, or, or Or you do the same thing, for instance, like if there are minority shareholders who are being screwed in some kind of a takeover deal, then you buy some of those shares and then you sue to um, to get the same deal that the majority shareholders got or something like that. And, and I, I just want to say that the distressed debt are the bad boys of the hedge fund world. And I just looked at a list of current hedge funds that, that deal in distressed he- uh, debt. And like quite a few of them start with the word black. They, you got black diamond, black river, black eagle, black port, black rock and black stone. I was like, there's there's got to be some reason for this. I think they're the bad boys. I, I don't know the BlackRock and Blackstone are big in distress debt. They're not. I mean, they just are investors. They're, they're giants and they do everything. So I, I have another sort of layman's question about hedge funds, which they seem to have this reputation of being like the smart people on the, like in the investment world now. Like they're the ones that draw the real brain power uh, more so than the big banks. Is that true? To any, like, are, is that really where the the so what hedge funds are famous for? And certainly this is the case where I worked at Deesha, is that what, what you had to do is sort of statistically separate the different kinds of risk and the different kinds of um, alpha, you know, the different kinds of forces that are going on. And so you use sort of a complicated mathematics. You try to understand this idea of how much you're going to move the market and how much the transaction costs. You're very, very like minutely picking apart all the components of a trade. And it works some of the time. And then when a huge crisis hits, it doesn't work anymore. But to answer your question, the money in hedge funds, if you are good at it, dwarfs the amount of money that you can make at any bank. So you're Lloyd Blankfein and you're making $50 million a year and then some random hedge fund guy you've never heard of makes 10 times that. Yes, if you can get onto the buy side, as it's known, the rewards are much greater. And the way that Wall Street works is that people just make as much money as they can. That's the rule. And the other thing is that hedge funds are absolutely good. The hedge fund quants, anyway, the, the people that we're talking about, are really good at sort of generalizing this concept of betting on the markets. That's why you know, we talked about the sports betting. You know, that is the bread and butter of a, of a, of a quant in, at a hedge fund. It's like they're like, if there's information I can use to make a bet on future movements... I'm going to do it. They're very generalist in that sense. They don't have, they're not fixed at equities or options. One of my favorite hedge fund stories is the guy who realized that there was a correlation with sunspots in Texas. That like, When there was a lot of solar activity, this would interfere with the cell phone service in an area of Texas. And a bunch of people in Texas would get annoyed and switch their cell phone service from one carrier to another carrier because they were blame the, blaming the carrier rather than the solar activity. And by looking at solar activity, he could actually play these cell phone stocks. 
It was amazing. And it, wor- it worked. And it worked. That's, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> and, that's, and the other thing is that hedge funds, of course, are the major players in the sort of algorithmic high-frequency trading. Yeah. So they, they basically yeah. will do anything that actually has an expected positive return. But so they are the world's highest paid generalist gamblers. And because they're very, very good at it. They're very good well, at it. Well, some of them are very good. And, some some, of, and, yeah. and, and every day someone sets up a hedge fund and it goes nowhere. And this is why the averages, which you were talking about, like mm. the average hedge fund underperforms the market. Well, the average hedge fund closes very quickly without much in the way of assets under management. So, you know, it's, it's a very dog-eat-dog world. We are going to move on. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, you should check out Braintree, which is used by Uber and Hotel Tonight and Airbnb. You've heard of all of these things. They use it because it is seamless and magical. People pay for things effortlessly in these apps. And so if you're building an app, you want your users to pay for things effortlessly, you should use Braintree. It will accept PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, you name it. One single integration across all platforms, fraud protection, customer service, fast payouts, and because you're listeners to Slate Money and you're special, you get your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. So go to braintreepayments.com slash slatemoney for $50,000 in transactions fee-free. So the next... The next big asset class is venture capital. Now, this is the one which is all over Twitter, which is all over the tech blogs. Everyone's like, look at this company that's backed by Anderson Horowitz. Look at this company that's backed by Sequoia. Look at these amazing venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who made billions of dollars by investing in Uber and investing in, or even back in the day, investing in Intel or investing in Apple. Um, the venture capitalists love to paint themselves as being much less evil than, say, the hedge fund people, because rather than just playing the markets, they say, we are creating the future. We are creating the companies of the future. We are making the world a better place. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we're making two and 20 for doing that and becoming very wealthy. But they, they have a colorable claim, I would say, that they do more they have more like real world effects in terms of actually creating businesses in the real world than other bits of the alternative asset world yeah so they they think of themselves as entrepreneurs whereas the you know the hedge funds and a lot of well, people they, they have, think of themselves as like backing entrepreneurs right well they think of themselves as understanding and being able to locate and recognize entrepreneurial spirit Let's right. put it that way. Whereas at the hedge funds, like at least the kind of stuff I was doing is numbers, numbers, numbers. Like just show me your numbers. I'm not talking to a human being. Yeah. I, I think that it's a more than colorable claim. And here's the thing. It's not even about individual VCs being good or, you know, making the world a better place. I think that the important thing is that the United States has a venture capital ecosystem. Um, and that combined, all of these people are running around trying to throw money at new companies and trying to make them grow and expand and do something somewhat innovative. Um, and that makes the U.S. itself a more innovative and fertile economy. And so even if, you know, whether or not one of these funds actually has special powers of prognostication where they can pick out the next Uber or the next Google or whatever, you know, who knows, you know, how much of it is luck and how much of it is skill. But the fact that they, as an industry, it has convinced people to throw their money at this task, I think is generally a good thing. Except it's not good for the investors. There's this fantastic I, Kaufman... I, no, I did not say for the investors. I said for, <laughs> for America. Right. So it might be good for invest for America, or it might not be. There's, there's a, also the fact that because there's so much venture capital money available, mm-hmm. companies don't need to go public. And so a lot of private companies just simply pre- stay private for indefinitely, basically, um, Companies used to go public when they were three or four years old. Now they go public seven or eight if they go public at all. And the result is that those, you know, muggins like us who just invest in the S&P 500 are not invested in all of these companies like Uber and Airbnb and all the rest of it because they are not listed. And so the only people who have the opportunity to invest in those are the elite um, accredited investors. And that may or may not be good for a sort of shareholding democracy. So can we talk a little bit about how venture capitalists actually do their thing? 
Well, uh, certainly we can. And the other thing I need to say, which is the exact opposite of what I just said, oh, okay. is, is that if you do invest in venture capital, you wind up massively underperforming the market. This is the greatest service that the Kaufman Foundation has ever done. This is wonderful. There's this billion-dollar foundation in Kansas City called the Kaufman Foundation, which is devoted to fostering entrepreneurship, whatever that means. And I don't think they've really fostered a huge amount of entrepreneurship with their billion dollars, but what they do have is a big endowment, a billion-dollar endowment, and they went and, because they love, in, love entrepreneurship, they put a lot of it into, into venture capital for decades, and they went back and they looked at the returns they got on all of those venture capital investments going back decades, and these are historically very secret, and so no, no one knows what they were, except for Kaufman just published them all. Yeah. And they came out and said, yeah, we would have been totally better off just investing in the Russell 2000. Interesting. So a question, though, do you think that given the conversation we just had about hedge funds and how, you know, comparing it to the stock market isn't always the be fairest thing, do you think that saying, oh, we would have been better off with a small cap stock index fund is actually a, a, a fair indictment? I think so. Because the other thing that the Kaufman Foundation did um, is that they put out a list of the fastest growing startups in America. Um, you know, these are the kind of companies that venture capitalists love to fund. And it turned out that only about 5% of them had taken any kind of venture capital money. That if you're a fast-growing startup and you happen to be in Palo Alto, then there's a very good chance that you've got VC funding. But there are thousands and thousands of fast-growing startups all over America which don't have VC money. And frankly, if you don't have VC money and you're growing fast, that's great because... As an entrepreneur, you don't want to give up that amount of control and give up that much upside. So I think I think what I'm hearing is that we hear about the venture capital success stories, but that th those are kind of misleading. That on average, if you just have a let's say a, a index of venture capital uh, oppor funding opportunities, you'd actually be losing money on average. Well, it's maybe not losing money in absolute terms, although certainly if you bought, if you invested near the top of the market in 99 or 2000, you certainly lost money. But in relative terms, compared to the opportunity cost of just investing in the Russell 2000, which is, you know, fast growing small companies generally, you're better off doing that. Yeah. I, I will say, just to push back a tiny bit um, before we leave this subject, I'm not so worried about the fact that random 401k holders aren't going to get to have their money put into Uber. Um, because in general, uh, you know, we're not really a democracy of shareholders, as you put it. Shareholders, like stockholding is very concentrated at, at the within basically the top 10% uh, of wealth holders in America. So, you know, I, I'm kind of, insofar as VC does encourage the growth of new innovative companies, and we're kind of arguing about that a little bit, but insofar, assuming is it, it does spur more high-tech growth in America, I think that probably outweighs uh, whatever losses the top 10% of American wealth holders are suffering because and they I'll can't just, invest in Uber. I'll oh. just jump in and say that although the headline-grabbing VCs do tend to be in the technology industry, not all VC is technology. Okay. Well, well, I mean, really the thing is that, you know, when we give people advice to invest in the S&P or the an ETF that tracks the S&P, it's because it's relatively safe. Whereas if you in, invested in, not Uber, because obviously Uber is an exception, but in a random Silicon Valley startup, you're going to almost always lose all of your money, right? So these guys are the ones that are willing to do it uh, because they believe in the idea, they believe in the team or whatever. And, you know, it, I'm glad they exist. Yeah, um, but yes, can, can we talk about the process that they actually do, they use to choose the people? Oh, the, it's, the basically, it's so, basically, who do you know? Do you, are, are you, do you, literally one VC came out and said this, uh, do you look like Mark Zuckerberg? You know, right. are, are you, are you some kind of obviously highly intelligent geek who has no social skills and who can just like put his head down and not care about money until you've built a $10 billion company? It's, well, I mean, again, it's impossible to generalize. But in but you can because after, after all, Theranos uh, founder Elizabeth Holmes looks like Steve Jobs, not <laughs> exactly. like Mark Zuckerberg. But you can but you can say that they they like you you can generalize and say that they overwhelmingly support highly educated white men and sometimes Asian men. Like women 
who are backed by VC are a tiny minority, and Elizabeth Holmes is part of that minority. It's like an anti. It's like the world's nerdiest beauty contest. Like you know, you get brought into the boardroom and you give your PowerPoint presentation or slide deck and explain why you're going to change the world in front of all these you know VCs who are sitting around a table wearing their turtlenecks or you know call or you know shirts with their collars open, whatever, no ties allowed, and, and hope to impress them. But yeah, in the end, it is just kind of. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's based on kind of and looks it's created, and it's created this bizarre system in Silicon Valley where there are thousands of companies who are just basically going from funding round to funding round, and they're spending so much time trying to raise money from VCs that they have no money to actually develop their product. Right. So let's talk about the life of a company that has VC funding. Because I used to work at one. And it it's not just... Uh, when you're trying to get another round of funding, that it's distracting. It's distracting at every single board meeting because you have to impress your your board, which and your board is populated by people who are VC funders, and it's it's it it is really distracting. It keeps you from actually creating the product that you've promised to create. And it's and it's highly dilutive as well to the employees with equity. All of the VC big VC firms have these things called liquidity preferences, which means that if and when you do sell the company for some vast amount of money or go public or something like that, they're top of the stack. They need to get all of their money back before anyone else gets anything. Yeah, and they have this assumption that they're not going to invest in you unless they can get a 10x return within two years, I think is the standard. Uh, it's the other thing besides 2 and 20 that's the standard th- uh, thought process. So you have not only uh, people hovering over your shoulders who are going to get the money first, but it has a very, very short time limit. So it's extremely stressful. So I will say there there is this like kind of venture capital nouveau movement, right? Where now they're saying, we're not just giving you money and and demanding a return. We're also going to try and teach you how to be better entrepreneurs and give you resources. And it's sort of the Andreessen Horowitz approach. Like, you know, Mark Andreessen's very famous, or has become sort of almost like the face of venture capital now to the wider public. And that's been part of his firm's, you know, shtick is that they're going to kind of shepherd you through it. And I I wonder how, how much of how much of the industry is that? Like, how much of it is, you know, firms trying to give money and then kind of raise these young entrepreneurs and so, something so more? So this is, and... you know, firms compete with each other to invest in the hot startups. Yeah. You know, if I'm Max Levchin, say, I can raise money from any VC company I like. So then they all try and compete with each other to say, we can, be, we can give you better strategic advice than the next guy. And some entrepreneurs will tell you that some of the firms can be okay in that. And here in New York, for instance, people who um, have Fred Wilson as an investor, who's a very famous VC in New York, he's one just about the only famous VC in New York, you know, say lots of nice things about what he does for them. But in general, eh, I would say that the main thing that the VCs provide is still what they've always provided, which is cash. They're money men. And speaking of cash, don't they have just a ton of cash right now? Aren't we like bracing ourselves for the next bubble? Yes. Yeah, so I actually just drew up. I, I pulled up some stats on that, and Felix is going to glare at me while I uh, read off a laptop. Read off a laptop. But so I just want to put it in perspective because we actually you do hear a lot about a bubble, right? And there's a lot of money being invested in venture capital right now, uh, according to the National Venture Capital Association, which tracks such things. Uh, through the third quarter of this year, uh, there've been forty-seven billion dollars worth of uh, $47 billion of venture capital invested. Um, that's This is invested by investors in VC firms or invested by VC firms and companies? Uh, that is, I believe, in companies. Okay. Yeah, in companies. Uh, Since and, that's such a really huge number, like, what is that in comparison to five years well, ago? So that's, for instance, last year, for all of last year, it was about $50 billion. Uh, for the year before that, it was about $30 billion. Um, but to put all those numbers in a little perspective... Um, back in 2000, at the height of like the dot com nuttiness, it was 104 billion. So, so we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So like, yeah, maybe we have a bubble now, but like, that's not a bubble. That's a bubble. Like that's the kind of thing, you know. Like, <laughs> but on the other hand, you yeah. know, that so many of these firms are technology companies running on AWS, where the amount of money you need is so much lower than it was back in 2000 when you needed to buy server farms and all the rest of it that. It's not, you know, we'll see. I it, it does seem inarguable that private company valuations are pretty crazy these days. Bu- bubbly. I'm just saying maybe it's like a, a media, like, you know, it's a, a 
bunch of small bubbles rather than like one of those giant ones that you can kind of like. Bad ideas I are still know. around. And yeah. if you invest even less, half the amount of money and you lose it all, you've still lost it all. Yes, this is true. That was better than what I was ending we're, on. We're <laughs> coming back to private equity after this. We are also sponsored this week by SAP HANA which helps the world's best businesses rise above complexity and get answers to questions most other companies don't even think to ask. So they can become more agile, increase capacity, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future instead of just reacting to the present, and totally reimagine the way they do business. It's simple. The answer is SAP HANA. Run SAP, run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. Um, Jordan, yes. once upon a time, there was this thing called the LBO. Yes. What happened to the LBO? Well, and what, what was an LBO? Okay. So during the 70s and 80s, this idea of something called a leveraged buyout emerged. And sort of the most famous version is probably the, the leveraged buyout of RJR Nabisco, RJR Nabisco in Barbarians at the Gate. And the idea was that you could essentially take a public company private by in the by in a deal where the company itself is borrowing all this money you the company would borrow money to be bought and then you would take it and then you would try to you would get you would borrow the money yeah. the, the company would borrow the money it would give that money to its shareholders that's yeah. the and then the shareholders say thank you very much so they don't have the shares anymore the company is privately held and the equity is a tiny sliver at the bottom of the slag stack rather goes to the buyout firm Right. This is happening at the same time as the rest of the junk bar junk bond market in the seventies and eighties. People are willing to give you know, pay as long as you were willing to give lots of interest, people were willing to give you money for these sorts of deals. Credit was widely available. Eventually the junk bond market crashed, uh, and leveraged buyouts sort of became uh, politically problematic and they faded from view largely during the 90s however and this coincides with mike milken going to jail mike milken was the guy who more or less invented the leverage buyout and when he went to jail it had a bad smell that name so they reinvented it and they called it private equity it's just, exactly the same thing just to be sure i understand this and I, I i've learned this like three times but it's always confusing so you're some you're the leverage buyout from sorry the private equity firm and you are maybe like 15 people, right? You're a smallish. But you have friends in all the big banks that help you arrange this ridiculously complicated deal. But the end result is you own a company that is highly, highly in debt. Yes. Y yes. Why is this a good idea? Because, you, because if you just put up $1 and then there's $9 of debt, you can basically own a $10 billion company for $1 billion. So you basically leverage your little pot of money to however much... that's why much, it's called a leverage That's why the, the, ju the junk bond market helped you do that. Or, right? or uh, I believe it's also now known as the leveraged loan market for exactly the same <laughs> reason. So, so I see. So it somehow is allowed oh, by to the way, exist. By the way, junk bonds got got um, rebranded too. They're not called junk bonds anymore. They're called high yield. High yield bonds. Correct. Okay. So however you call it, at the end of the day, you own this company, but isn't the company in crisis? Well, that's that's sort of the big question, right? There, there's this whole issue of, well, what happens to companies that are bought by private equity now? Like, or what do you do next? Yeah. Well, so one of the ideas... With private equity, the idea is that you have this company that's in debt, um, and you're going to figure out a way to up its profits, make it more valuable. You're going to play with its operations. You're going to sell off, you know, maybe you bought a conglomerate that you're going to sell off one of its sort of lower performing units and, you know, split it up into lots of little pieces, and you think you're going to unlock the value. And this is this is sort of what Mitt Romney became famous for doing, essentially, at bank capital, is he was a private equity baron. Um, and so these guys... You know, the idea of private equity or the way they de they defend it is they say we are unlocking value in capitalism. We are making companies work better. We are we are spotting opportunities to make money for our investors while turning kind of slow dinosaurs into fast, nimble, you know, fawns of but capitalism. The, but the, the <laughs> sort of unlocking of the value, which yeah. is the critical part I don't understand, doesn't happen inherently just because you bought a company that's now in debt. You have to do something, no, right? No, so... so the private equity managers have two main skills. The first is being able to line up a whole bunch of bond and loan financing to be able to buy the company in the first place. And then the second is this idea they have, which is proved in execution or not, whereby they say, 
we can run this company better than it was run when it was a public company. We can create, we can make more profits with lower overhead. We can fire a bunch of people who are just expensive and dead meat, and we can make the company worth more without having a bunch of public shareholders breathing down our necks. And we can then come back to the public markets in five to seven years' time having made the whole company much more streamlined and efficient and profitable and take it public for even more than we bought it for and make lots of money that way. And does it does it work? I mean, do, do they know how to do that? I mean, you know, there, there's, there have actually been a lot of economic studies on this issue. And, you know, my read of them is, is that the, the balance of evidence says, yes, they, they sort of do do that. They're not there, there are certainly not the caricatures that they're sometimes made out to be, because um, yeah, there is this idea that private equity comes in, loads, lards up your company with debt, leaves, you know, fires everyone, and then eventually leaves it in bankruptcy. It's just sort of like a smoking crater. That's like the worst case scenario, and that's what got trotted out against Mitt Romney. And yet, and, and the thing but, which you have to remember here is that it can be in the private equities company, private equity company's best interest to do that. It is possible, not always the. It's not what they necessarily want to do from the beginning, but it is possible for a private equity company to do a leveraged buyout, to dividend out so much profits and so many fees. They get the company to pay them fees for managing the company. Right. They get they they skim off all of the profits for many years, which is which is in total much more than they paid for the company in the first place. And then once they've done that, there's nothing left and it dies. And it is possible to make money from a company while killing it at the same time. Isn't there also a preferential tax treatment for being in debt? Isn't that part of the model? This is a huge part of why private equity makes sense and leveraged buyouts make sense is that the tax treatment of debt is way, way preferable to the tax treatment of equity. So in general, if you have profits, you want to get rid of those profits by by issuing new debt to buy back your stock so that you have less stock, less equity. And So in some sense, just by the mere fact of having a leveraged buyout, your company is more profitable. It's more tax efficient. Yeah, more tax efficient, certainly. And so, That's insane. But We should yeah. t- change the tax code. Yeah, I, I just, I kind of want to go through like, when I say economists have looked at this, one of the things they found is, okay, how often do these actually end up in bankruptcies, right? And one uh, one pair looked at like 17,000 transactions. And they found that if, as, as far as they could find with actual exit, when when they exited one of these deals, the bankrupt, only about 6% ended in bankruptcy, which is no different than like the normal bankruptcy rate for companies. Now, it might be the case that some like got spun off to like the public markets somehow and then went bankrupt later. But it... Be, there's no evidence that that was happening, like you know, in mass. On right? the other hand, it must suck to be in a company that gets bought. Well, so that's another thing, right? There's they've looked at what happens to, and again, there actually are a lot of firings at the start. Typically, like that, the cycle is they get bought, a lot of people are let go, but then hiring actually increases. So they fire more people than is typical for a non-private equity-owned company, but then they also hire more afterwards. So. It's not as if they're just cutting fat. It, to some degree, it looks like in a lot of these instances, they're trying to remake the company and make it more effective. Whether or not they know how to do that, whether they do it successfully is another deal. But they're, it, it's not like they're, they're not full of shit completely. <laughs> I guess that's like really the bottom line. It's like that's the balance of evidence. <laughs> that's the best we can say. The, the balance of evidence suggests that the private equity industry is not completely full of shit. One criticism of it now is that they're getting worse and worse at this because when it started in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of opportunities to just split up big dinosaur conglomerates and quote unlock value. Now there are a lot. There are fewer good candidates, but there's more money surging into this asset class. And mm. so. Recently, a bunch of private equity companies have, you know, poured into the oil and gas industry just before oil prices imploded, and they have lost billions of dollars doing that. So it is entirely possible for them to make really bad bets as well. And, and so, you know, in terms of whether or not the investors win or lose, again, people have tried to track this, and what they find is, on average, you're not going to beat the S&P 500. You, you, you lose out there. But apparently the entire difference comes down to the fees. Like that's if you if you subtract it before fees, private equity actually does tend to beat the market or like tend to be stocks, just regular old investing. But then after fees, you're underperforming it. That doesn't speak to this issue of diversification and everything, but it, you see how the two and 20 issue comes into play. So I have a number which is directly related to this. But so before we Before we um, go there, I need to talk about our sponsor this week. We are also sponsored this week by Mile IQ. 
which is a very handy app. It's probably the handiest app, well, at least in terms of profitability. It will make you money. You have appointments, you have clients, you have meetings, you have errands. Unless you are chained to your desk all day, you are one, almost certainly, of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. Even I've driven for work, and I almost, I barely have a car. Everyone does it, and you're either spending way too much time tracking every mile, or you're guesstimating and you're losing money, or you're using Mile IQ. If you, you are using Mile IQ, then congratulations. If you're not, you should start because the average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives. $547 a month is big money. It's real money. So all you need to do is install it on your phone. That's literally all you need to do. It will track your drives. It'll work out where you're going. You just go bing bong, bing bong. This one was personal. This one was business. And then it will tell you how much to claim for. It's super easy. They've got a five-star rating in the Google Play Store and the iTunes App Store, so stop wasting time manually tracking your miles. Stop losing money you should be claiming. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. My number this week is related to a deal that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The biggest private equity deal of all time, which is the acquisition by Silver Lake, which is a big private equity company, and Dell, and the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund of EMC. Now, this is a $50 billion acquisition. Well, it involves $50 billion of debt. And $50 billion of debt, as you know, costs an absolute fortune to service. And so the question you're asking yourself is, how on earth are they going to be able to afford to service $50 billion of debt? And so here's my number. That's two numbers. It is $4.6 billion, which is the amount of money that EMC spent on stock buybacks last year, mm. plus another $700 million, which its subsidiary VMware spent on stock buybacks last year. Add that up and you have over $5 billion just on dividends, basically, which is the same thing as a stock buyback. In other words, by levering this thing up, the cost of the debt, the cost of the annual cost of that $50 billion is less than the amount of money that they were paying on their equity. Hmm. So it's actually cheaper to do the LBO than it is to stay public. Which That's tells you about the fact that public markets are now basically a way to extract value out of a company anyway. So maybe it doesn't matter if they get bought out. <laughs> All right. Well, my number is also quite directly related to topics of today. It's uh, $1.3 billion. It's the number of dollars earned by Steve Cohen in 2014. He was the highest earning hedge fund manager. A mere $1.3 that, that seems small. Beer. I thought the top earning hedge fund managers normally earn more than that. Normally well, in 2013, uh, um, the Vox uh, writer Iglesias wrote an incendiary piece that the tw top 25 hedge fund managers made more than all the kindergarten teachers in the entire country. But this is just the number one top from 2014, Steve Cohen. And Steve Cohen was famous because his hedge fund uh, was charged with insider trading and he turned it into a private um, family office. Family office. Uh, he personally didn't get um, in trouble, but yeah, he made a lot of money. So this is, this is the other word which you come across in these kind of circles. You hear about hedge funds, you hear about VCs. There's also this wonderful world, word called family office, which um, it, like people who are rich often say, oh, I'm a private investor. People who are really, really, really rich say, oh, I have a family office. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I have lots of money and I invest my money. And they have entire like company-sized groups of people who help them. So they have their own private equity, uh, hedge funds, essentially. Yeah, in Steve Cohen's case, it was because he really couldn't keep running just the hedge fund. <laughs> the SEC kind of made fun sure of that. But um, So my number is uh, $78 million. That is how much uh, uh, money uh, private equity and investment firms uh, contributed uh, during the 2012 election cycle, according to OpenSecrets.org. I bring this up because often you'll hear about the carried interest loophole. This is another part of 2 and 20. It's the idea that that 20 percent, 
that 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 the twenty twenty percent of the profits profit. is something known as carried interest, and you don't pay income tax on it. You pay income tax on the two, but you don't no. pay income tax on the twenty. No, exactly. Instead, you pay capital gains taxes, which, as we all know, the maximum rate for capital gains taxes is quite a bit lower than the maximum rate for income taxes. And so, essentially, everyone looks at this and goes, "How on earth does this loophole exist?" Basically, hedge funds are going to pay a don't loop. say hedge funds. Sorry, I apologize. That's actually a common mistake. It's private equity guys for the most part. And because of the way their investments work, occasionally a few hedge funds. Um, but these private equity guys, how are they getting taxed at a lower rate than the rest of us, rest of us essentially for their labor income? And I'm not going to recapitulate the whole argument, but... It's bullshit, basically. It's, it's, it's bottom line. It, it, it kind of is just bullshit. Um, <laughs> you can spend a lot of time reading about this and just come away and be like, yeah, that's bullshit. But the, uh, however, that $78 million explains a lot of it. <laughs> they, these guys... Why it still are, exists. Yeah, these guys are active politically. Granted, that was a particularly active uh, cycle because one of their own, Mitt Romney, happened to be running for president. That played a certain role. Nonetheless, they are quite... Um, Obama hasn't changed anything. No. Well, but it's getting to the point where even the Republican Party now is saying, okay, we should probably get rid of this loophole. However, Donald they, Trump is big on yes, closing this but loophole. but his tax plan is is devised in such a way that even by, quote, closing that loophole, most most private equity guys would still get a tax cut in the he's, end. He's closing it by bringing the other Every, tax yeah. rate down, <laughs> probably. Basically. So, like, don't don't get... Same with Jeb Bush. It, it's not... The, this was actually what, like, one of the Republican debates, one of the candidates was actually asked, why is it that the rate of capital gains tax should be lower than the rate of income tax? Which is one of my favorite questions. And, of course... In the debate context, no one can give a thoughtful answer to that. But maybe in a future episode of Slate Money, we can we can tease apart that question because it's a very, very interesting question. I, I agree. I would love to have a talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. You can leave a review there. We love it when you do that. Write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. Say nice things about Audrey Quinn, our producer, who's amazing. Say mean things about Andy Bowers, our executive producer, who's also amazing, but he's my boss, so I have to say that. Um, Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check out the whole roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.